Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to this. Okay. Oh, welcome to the Building Science. To the Building Science Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay. Hello and welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm here as always with my sidekick friend and co-worker, Miguel. Howdy. There you go. Eloquent as always. I also am extremely excited to introduce Bruce King. I will bet you many of you do not need an introduction to Bruce. Bruce King is a structural engineer out there on the West Coast, and he is also a very influential individual in our society. He has written Oh, a couple little books maybe you've heard of, New Carbon Architecture, and now recently Build Beyond Zero. They both are um, on the same theme, which is, uh, oh, I don't know, something like, hey, the climate's not what it used to be, and um, we'll take it from there. Bruce, uh, I introduced you as a structural engineer near San Francisco. Anything else you'd like to uh, use to introduce yourself, per se? Oh, well, howdy, y'all. Um, <laughs> well, first, let me just correct that this latest book, Build Beyond Zero, that we're very happy about, is a joint effort between myself and, and my buddy Chris Magwood. Very important. Thank another you. Another wonderful character um, out of Peterborough, Canada. But as to me, uh, I'm just a lonesome pilgrim in this world uh, okay. who happened to study structural engineering and occasionally looked around and wondered what I could do about difficulties I was seeing. And here I am. So did the book come out? Of, I guess it came out of your work as structural engineering in structural engineering or what's the story there? What's the connection? Now, I guess well, I'm referring to your first book. It did. I often say I, I went to engineering school in the seventies and I, I say I was the only guy in my school with a, with a ponytail and a tie dyed t-shirt. And that may not technically be true, but it was pretty close to true. I was, I was, I was wondering what I was doing there. Mm -hmm. Um, but I hadn't thought of anything better to do. And, and my dad said, well, you like to build stuff, you know, and you're good at math. So why don't you do that? And I enjoyed the rigor of it, but I really profoundly wondered, what am I going to do with this? Cause I didn't know of any engineers who seemed like role models and so on, but I just sort of did it and put one foot in front of the other. And then opportunities came up where I could do something a little more interesting. The beginning of the green building movement 30 years ago, and there was no attention being paid to materials back then. In fact, we haven't really started paying attention, much attention to materials <laughs> till just recently. Yeah. Other than not to at all discredit my many wonderful colleagues who do a lot of great work on healthy building materials because we've created all sorts of unpleasant chemicals in the last hundred years yeah. that are now haunting us in various ways. And uh, people like Healthy Building Network and many other organizations are have been addressing that, but we haven't really been addressing the climate effects of the materials we choose. And right. I found my niche there because it's a big opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah, I hear you. When you say we, there's a question of we because there, there definitely are um, pockets of expertise in society that that see the train hurtling down the tracks and the bridge bridges out or something. And But generally speaking, the, the cultural paradigms that we operate under uh, broadly, they are they're kind of full speed ahead, but I think they're starting to shift, starting to pay attention to other stories. Um, we're hearing carbon all the time these days. It's in the news, you know, different 
different aspects of it, carbon emissions and CO2 and greenhouse gases. I think it would be a good place to start just to explore why is it we as a society and we as a building industry are paying attention to carbon emissions? Like just, I guess, start with the big picture. Like what's going on here? That's a big old fat softball, isn't it? It is. Um, Well, you know, we figured out actually some people figured out a hundred years ago that if we keep burning fossil fuels, it's going to change the chemistry of the atmosphere, which is, I'm impressed that anybody could figure that out. I mean, it's not very much, you know, 400 parts per million is, that's nothing. That's four hundredths of a percent. It's a really mm-hmm. tiny amount of carbon, carbon dioxide in the air, but it's more than enough to act like a blanket and trap. Oh boy, I don't want to go into the whole physics of with greenhouse gases. It's not that complicated, but there's lots of great explanations. But right, the okay, word so greenhouse. Now, <laughs> some of us, anyway, have figured out that we're changing the climate to our own harm and the harm mm-hmm. of other species, and we better stop real soon. And the building industry is a huge part of that. So I, all that I've been doing with green building and the, the natural building world, earthen building, straw bale building, all of a sudden comes into focus in a completely new light as part of the answer because natural building, and I asked around a lot of people, all these people are really into straw bale building and, and earth and, and bamboo. And they say, well, what is natural building? And they would they didn't give me good answers. I say, well, it's it's got to feel good. Or they're emotive <laughs> answers, which is fine. But so I, being an engineer, I just thought thought about it a lot. Said, well, natural building is just using what's nearby and not modifying it very much, not modifying any more than you really have to to turn it into a, a useful do- building. Right. And there you go, and that put everything in a completely different light. Mm-hmm. And now you yeah. hear people talking about straw bale buildings and bamboo and cob in the halls of Washington and Sacramento and Austin because, oh, that's where it's at. Yeah, it's, I think that the lens, that, like kind of the lens that we don't see through very often is how fossil fuels, petrochemicals are everywhere. And our, our, the way we run our global economy is absolutely dependent on them. And it's it's something like a failure of imagination to to believe that there's another way, right? That there's another possibility, and yet at the same time, uh, very powerful force like by industry for profit market transition is rewriting our energy economy right now. Yeah, and uh, that's a big help. That that'll have a lot of impact. But here we are, you and I. Uh, you're a structural engineer. I'm a mechanical engineer, and our industry the what's called AEC, architecture, engineering, and construction industry, it has a, a lot of agency in uh, kind of stopping the practice to, to charge, charge things on the, I don't know, the environmental credit card that we hope our kids or grandkids will pay off because we won't be here to get the bill. And so yeah. carbon in buildings. Yeah. I want to talk about carbon in buildings. Does that prompt you to you feel like you could you could run with that, or should I prompt you a little more deeper? Oh well, no. Um, sure, I can run with that. I, actually, I wrote a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote two books about it. Yeah. You know, I, when I started writing about buildings and climate, starting with the new carbon architecture, and I was running around all my colleagues, many of whom you know or know of, you know, interviewing them, and some of them contributed to it. Yeah. And uh, embodied carbon, okay, embodied carbon, it's a big deal, it's a big part of the global climate problem. And okay, 
And it looked like I was going to be writing a book about, oh, here's an, yet another bummer that we all have to deal with and pay attention right. to. And okay, there's another bummer that I'm going to dutifully learn about and mm -hmm. pay attention to. And then it dawned on me and it hit me that, well, no. I mean, yes, it is a big part of the problem, but there's a gigantic opportunity, even bigger than the problem, that we could transform the whole built environment. Bigger than just the buildings that we live in, work in, the streets and the highways, the harbors and the tunnels and the bridges, all of it. Turn it into a carbon repository as a place to put the carbon we pull back out of the sky because it's now established fairly well by the uh, IPCC, their last report. We have to not only reduce the emissions down to zero, we have to start pulling some of the carbon back out of the sky. So we got to have a place to put it. And we in the building industry should step up and say, we will. Yeah. Because we can. Because it's quite doable. Yeah. Yeah. I think that. Like just stepping back, if you if you zoom back out, I was going to say to the planet, but even even larger than a planet, here we are on this planet and we have sun hitting us. It's this massive source of energy. We have a molten magma core, which leads to plate tectonics, which is implicit in fossil fuels, right? Gravity also implicit in fossil fuels, the heat and pressure that cooked those organic beings that yeah. I guess the, the aqueous what is it aqueous chemistry or the chemical potential of water there's all these major forces we're living off of them and just like anything else reality exists and there's a finite amount of energy there's a finite amount of stuff and um for a long time society didn't realize that it was living beyond its budget right and it's kind of like me you know thinking i really need to start going to the gym I think I'll I'll have that realization long before I actually go back to the gym. And I, I feel like I hope and I believe that we're in this transition period culturally where we have realized it and we're gradually kind of like this podcast and your books and, you know, all the small interactions we have, they're incrementally galvanizing societal will to go, OK, it is time to do something new. Yeah. Yeah. But I would I would disagree please. with you, though. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> we will never suffer for not enough energy. There's enough energy in my thumb tip to power the world for a year. That's not the problem. There's lots of energy. We just don't know. We don't know how to work with it. We're like beginning students of Tai Chi Chuan. We just don't know how to work with the. We're not good at it. We're clumsy. Mm -hmm. And we found this uh, cheap source of intense energy in these literally fossil fuels, decomposed plant remains yeah. that we found underground. And we went wild with it. And who wouldn't? It's hard to imagine any species would do anything else because. Right. There they are. Look what they can do. I mean, I mean look, I mean, I'm, I'm wearing fossil fuels. I ate food prepared and grown and delivered by fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. I'm in a building conditioned by fossil fuels. Microplastics it, in, in our bodies. In every way, we are children of the fossil fuels now. We're mm -hmm. literally, yeah, in, in our bodies for better and especially uh, very much for worse. Yeah. Um, so extracting ourselves doesn't seem like a simple proposition, but, um, at the same time, I don't know, it's kind of a cool challenge with all it respect really to all those who are suffering, uh, all those species and all those human beings who are suffering, the people biggest migrate, you know, uh, migration in Europe is happening now since world war II because of the war in Ukraine, it's basically based on fossil fuels. And yet humanity is up for a challenge, you know, and whether we'll rise to it or not, I don't know, but I'm give it all I got. Yep. Yep. Same.
So just jumping back, because I, I want to get to the operational and embodied carbon emissions. Uh -huh. and, you know, I think it's clear fundamentally people know that carbon per se isn't the problem. It's the greenhouse gas effect. Oh, I know where I was going with that big picture, solar system picture. So all those forces, they create over time a, a, a dynamic equilibrium on the planet. And then we take carbon that was deep underground. And there's a cool Saturday Night Live skit on this, but I, I won't diverge. And we take it and we put it in the sky, right? So from deep underground into the sky, it's hard to imagine that the, the equilibrium, you know, that would have happened naturally, excluding volcanic emissions and some other processes. So what we do is we have greenhouse gases and they let the heat in like a greenhouse and then they trap it on the way out because it downshifts and it becomes a different form of thermal energy. So when it comes to buildings, there's these two main terms, right? So keep in mind carbon is, and I'm talking not to you, Bruce, but to some of the listeners, carbon is a, a term that's it's saying greenhouse gases, meaning effects that disrupt the ecosystems upon which we all depend <laughs> for uh -huh. everything. And so there's operational carbon and embodied carbon. I'd like you to kind of differentiate those two and maybe quick definitions. Sure. Um, if you build a building, even if it's just adding a bedroom to the side of your house or building a high rise in, in uh, Houston or San Francisco, there's two phases of, of the carbon emissions with that building. It's always two phases. The first phase is the embodied emissions, meaning whatever you use to build it, all the materials you chose, all the trucks roaring around, but especially the materials that you use, concrete and steel, especially glass, mm -hmm. all the metals, insulation. They have an upstream, meaning up in the supply chain somewhere, somebody burned a lot of fossil fuels to make that cement and make that glass and so on. Those are the embodied emissions. And that's about one out of every eight emissions that human beings put in the air every day, the global construction industry. Then when they move into wow. the building, you start, you turn on the lights, run the air conditioner and all of that stuff. That's the operational energy or operational emissions. And over a regular lifetime of a building, those will be much bigger than the embodied emissions, but that's over a 40, 60, 80 year lifetime. And it's worth paying attention to. And that's what the net zero and passive house movements are about and good on them. But everybody's realizing now, oh, we care a whole lot more about the next 10 years than we do about the next 80. And it's not an either or proposition. We can have both. Right. So that's the focus is, is um, have the really, not necessarily net zero, but super efficient buildings of every type and fix up the ones we already have and use materials that at the very least are low emitting, but ideally are actually absorbing carbon. Right. Like they're, con they're constituted of carbon. They're not absorbing carbon actively like a sponge is absorbing water. They are constituted of carbon that we pulled from the sky. Mm -hmm. And so they're stuck there in the building. They're, they're sequestered there. Sequestered the away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, even the, a simple concept like zero, right? You hear about net zero buildings and it quickly bifurcates. Oh, do you mean net zero site or net zero source or net zero energy, net zero carbon? And, you know, for everyone listening, uh, it's net zero carbon that's um, starting to matter. And even that is... Right. So there's like positive energy. It was a react, the name of the company. It was a reaction to why stop uh, at zero? Why not do positive? And so interestingly, it gets flipped on its head. Like the best buildings now are negative carbon buildings. Yes. meaning They have carbon stuck in them. They've pulled carbon out of the sky or yeah, 
if they're made out of plants. I'm glad you mentioned that because it's worth noting for those of you who might wonder, there's very confusing terminology out there. Mm-hmm. If I, if I, um, well, if I build a building and have so many solar panels and such an efficient facade and all of that, that uh, I'm actually delivering more energy to the grid than I'm ever going to use. Energy. Is that a positive building or a negative building? And likewise, <laughs> if I'm, if I'm, absorbing more carbon than I ever emitted. Is that carbon positive or carbon negative? And, and a bunch of us really did sit down five years ago. Say, what do we do? We, we settled on, we sort of settled on carbon smart because we, because mm. amongst us, some were using positive and negative one way and the other half of us was using positive, negative, the opposite way. So it still is kind of confusing because you see both in yeah, I see papers, both. in popular literature and it's a bit of a mess. But uh, carbon smart or climate smart seemed like the best compromise. I'm not particularly happy with it. It's not as compelling. And you know, net zero is a really cool phrase. People remember it. But as an engineer, you, you know that zero is kind of a fluid thing. You know, things move up and down above zero in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of systems. And it almost is meaningless. Yeah. Especially since we definitely want, that's why we called the book, Build Beyond Zero. We're not trying to get to zero. How boring is that? Like, okay, we're not doing anything bad anymore. Mm, nothing bad anymore. No, let's just exuberantly do good stuff. Mm-hmm. And in the course of that, shelter everybody and yeah. have our transportation, food, and everything handled. Yeah. We can do that. Shit, yeah, we can do that. Absolutely. Yeah, so I think that really people start to, they think they bifurcate buildings and they say, okay, there's conventional buildings and then there's sustainable or green or whatever, net zero buildings. And I really think that I would like to make it a three-way where there's conventional, which has high embodied carbon, high operational carbon. And then there's, let's say, net zero buildings, which have probably high embodied carbon, but maybe zero or very low operational carbon. And then there's the, the negative carbon buildings, which right then I was like, should I say positive or negative? There's a smart carbon buildings that they have negative, deep negative embodied carbon and zero operational carbon. Yeah. And it's absolutely doable, right? And it's, and that's the point, that is the challenge for people like us that have, you know, we're PEs, professional engineers. And yet we, we're like, you know what? The problem is not that I can't do this. The problem is that people are not asking me to do this. Um, so we resort to books and podcasts. And you, you touched on another very important theme, which which kind of breaks my heart, and I call it remodeling with a bulldozer. Um, people buy these. I live in a, a, a quaint old downtown bungalow neighborhood here in, in Austin, and apparently people love the neighborhood, but they hate the quaint old bungalows um, because they remodel them with a bulldozer. Um, any comments on, uh, I guess, new versus retrofit or reusing existing buildings? And I know I told you no, no graphs uh, on the podcast, so. Yeah, boy, a lot I could say about that. Having traveled the world and seen the burgeoning new metropolises, like I talked about in my talk last week, uh, like Cairo and Sao Paulo and Hangzhou. But also I've, I've been practicing engineering for 40 years, mostly in North America. And I'm, I've worked on projects in wealthy neighborhoods typically really wealthy relative to most of the world and somebody buys a property and it's a no brainer uh, from an accountant's point of view. You just scrape the land and then build the thing you want. It's a lot easier for the architect and engineer 
to build something brand new than to try to adapt what's already there. Because for that, you have to measure everything and know what's there and test the systems. It's way easier and cheaper to just scrape it. It takes a bulldozer a day to take down your average house and build exactly what you want straight up out of the ground. That's the economics of the situation we're in because uh, we, we have a system that values money uh, and it doesn't value the land and it doesn't value labor. Yeah. And so well in said. that context... That we could pause sense. right there and just hold our hands on our hearts. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. values yeah. money, it doesn't value land, it doesn't value the labor. Yeah. Huge, poignant. Yeah, yeah we, we, we're in a system where money is attracted to itself, the capitalist system. I have no idea how to change that. I'm sure we could all talk about that, but um, probably better to stay closer to subjects we know something about. Yeah. Because there are great people thinking about this stuff and working on it. Yeah. I'll stay on a little little tangent, but I, I just read a book called A Carpenter's Life. It's, it's out here in our break room. I'm trying to remember the guy's name, but it's not going to come to me. But he was born in the 1930s in like a sod house in Nebraska and brilliant eloquent guy but he he would also talk about like we don't value the land you know or, or like wendell berry would say we don't value the soil and the forest but he talked about working in the post-war construction boom he's an established carpenter by now in his 20s in the los angeles area and just watching these excavators and bulldozers take these massive old trees like madrones and, and, just, and just bulldoze them into massive piles like 30 foot tall piles and light them on fire and, you know, plow over all the creeks. And, and I'm, I confess, like, I'm naive enough that, you know, you come over the mountains into the Los Angeles Valley. And I just thought like, wow, what an amazing flat Valley this is. And I just somehow thought it was like a floodplain or, or whatever. It was just naturally broad and flat and uh, naivete showing. No, no, it was bulldozed to be flat. Well, no, no, no. The Los okay, Angeles Basin is, is naturally that way. They they certainly ripped the shit out of all the hills around it. <laughs> you know, what he was talking about were, were – because once you get up on the hillside a little bit and you got the view of everything, you, your property is worth 10 times as much. That was the cool stuff. And, and that's what the subdivision guys were doing uh, back then. Right, right. Okay. Well, that was a tangent, so I apologize. I went on my own tangent. Because what I want to come back to is that there are tools to, like, do the math – um, in the big picture, right? Like, you know, the, like, here's a, um, two by four, or here's a cubic foot of concrete. Let's do the cubic foot of concrete. The cubic foot of concrete is like, um, it represents a snapshot in time of a river of resources that flowed and were combined together to create that. And then there's something upstream or I guess downstream in my metaphor that it becomes. And so I'm talking about this, this cycle, this life cycle, and we can do these life cycle analyses. And I'm curious, over the course of your career, um, can you remember when life cycle analysis came in? And would you say it's it's small but growing, or is it um, pretty mainstream out where you are? Tell me about that. Life cycle analysis. Five years ago, there were maybe a few hundred people in the world who knew what LCA was, life cycle hmm. analysis. Uh, maybe a couple thousand. Maybe maybe further back than that, ten years. But it was it, it it's only recently started coming on, and now it's a very big deal. I mean, I'm working with various organizations, ASHRAE mainly, um, mm. on Standard One Eighty Nine Point One, to yeah. develop embodied carbon standards within One Eighty Nine Point One, which eventually we intend and hope will become part of the ICC, International. Yeah, building. like ninety point one is. Mm-hmm. 
Uh-huh. And it's all based on environmental product declarations, EPDs, which are in turn, of course, based on life cycle analysis. And so there's a huge push surging now uh, to all uh, construction product suppliers to get EPDs. And so you see more and more, especially concrete, that's the big one. Concrete has got the biggest footprint of any of the building materials. If, if concrete were a country as an industry, it would be the third biggest emitter in the world. Whoa. And, say that one uh, more time. If concrete were a country. Yeah, it would be the third biggest emitter in the world. Wow. After the U.S. and China. Wow. Um, and China, by the way, I just I'm reading in a different I'm reading after cooling. And it just said uh, China has surpassed us for carbon emissions, but we're still like 10 or 20. Cum- not for cumulative emissions, though. Right. Per capita, we are still like 10 or 10x what an average Chinese citizen is. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. So carbon emissions from concrete. Yeah. And so um, the the concrete companies are starting to get their EPDs for all of their mixes, uh, primarily right now on the on the East Coast and the West Coast. It hasn't migrated so much to the middle of the country yet. And I'm talking to the concrete guys about where they see that going, but they're going to have to. In the book, I I, I use the old, there's an old concrete joke that says there's two kinds of concrete, cracked or about to crack. <laughs> Concrete's brittle. And, you know, if you, anybody's ever poured a patio or something, you know that eventually it cracks. If you try really hard, you can make concrete that doesn't crack, but you have to really know what you're doing. And most of the time when it cracks, it's, it's minor and it's not a big deal. It's not anything to worry about. But um, in sort of a like manner as a simile, right now there are concrete, companies or more generally uh, building product manufacturers who are doing EPDs, doing life cycle analysis and tracking their carbon footprint. And then there are those who soon will be because mm-hmm. everybody soon will be. It's going to be in a very short amount of time akin to the, the product nutrition label on anything you find on a store in any grocery store in America now that um, when a contractor, a builder, uses any material on a project, he will need to know and he will ask to know what's the what's your carbon footprint of, of your product. And it's always products, by the way. At first we were talking about products and materials, then I thought about it. Go, Nobody ever uses just a material on a project. Even mm-hmm. if you order a truckload of sand, that sand has been sieved, cleaned, processed. It's a product. Water is a product. Everything we order for a job, construction job, is a product. It isn't, with the exception of the occasional natural building job where you're taking adobe out of the clay soil out of the ground and making bricks out of it. But then already it's a product because you made a form and then you made a brick. Mm -hmm. It's a product with a a carbon footprint. Really small one, but it's got a carbon footprint. There's effects to everything. Nothing is zero effect, but. Yeah. the, the the, The industry, the life cycle analysis is now hitting everybody upside the head and <laughs> and even people who maybe don't accept humans are causing climate change and they're making some sort of building product they're going to see the writing on the wall they're going to have to get the epds anyway because people won't buy their product primarily like the general services administration now has embodied carbon standards the state of california has some and is soon going to have a lot more i'm working with them also so you won't be able to do business with the biggest buyers of construction services in the country if you don't get up to speed and, and track your carbon footprint and then start yeah. improving on it. Yeah, absolutely. And and 
all of us have agency in that, but but especially specifier, especially like the architecture, like the AEC, the, the architecture and engineers. Um, they absolutely can. They can write it into their specs. They can and architects can design differently. They can. It's very powerful. I'm really heartened by the expansion of EPDs. When I first read about them, I guess it's maybe your book. Whenever your first book came out. I had a question of, and, and I still kind of do, Bruce, and, and it's maybe a, maybe it shows how how uh, cynical cynicism is. Like we're all kind of marinating in some aspect of it, but there's this question like, what motivates people to do EPDs, right? What, like, because you just said that East and the West Coast, but the center of the country. So, someone in Texas, for instance. I mean, I guess Austin recently just we have a new concrete mix now that's lower carbon. It's available. But can, can you talk about that? Like, what is it that motivates people? Is it really these these standards, these larger? It's money. It's business. Huh. You're, not gonna, you're not gonna stay in business. If, it's like if an automaker had said, "Whatever." When did we start putting smog control devices on cars? Right. And if somebody said, "70." No, I don't care about the smog. You know, you, you can't impede my ability to do business. Everybody's gonna say, "Fine," but nobody's gonna buy your money. car because mm -hmm. you have to have smog control. And it's it's like that. Nobody wants more regulations. Nobody's in love with bigger government and more, right? More paperwork to have to do and more hassle to think. I mean, nobody wants that. Nobody. Yeah. But once we get in the habit of doing it, then we won't have to think so much about it. It'll just be what we do. But mm -hmm. we have to cross over that hump first. Yeah. And that's going to take everybody getting on board and tracking what we would never bother to track before, which is your carbon emissions based on for what your product is. Yeah. Yeah, and I, th that's getting to where I thought we want. I wanted to end this. Is really, what is what is it taking? What is what is working? I think I'll hold that for now. But we're, we're kind of rewriting our cultural stories and our cultural um, ceremonies or practices. What what we do with ourselves. So when we talk about materials, I, I love that you brought up the materials. There, I love the way in your book you make it very simple in terms of. Um, carbon emissions needed to make the materials or embodied carbon of materials of all the materials used in the construction industry there's it's roughly one-third steel one-third concrete and one-third everything else so you mentioned glass earlier and uh so having a basic understanding of decarbonizing the steel industry and what to do as a, you know this is the building science podcast architects engineers builders homeowners but so what is it that they can do when they're ordering steel or I shouldn't say that just ordering what fundamental changes to thinking about using steel in the built world? How would you highlight that? Just steel for now. And then we'll go to concrete. There's a longish answer to these questions in the book. Oh my goodness. Um, yes. Yeah. I realize it's super challenging. I would have tried to package this in about an hour and, and good luck with that. I said but to, to, to go to your, your generalization, <laughs> which is, is a generalization, but not, too off that roughly a third of the embodied emissions in construction are from concrete. And if you actually start to include everything outside of buildings, all the highways and infrastructure, it's That's a lot I'm more. Mm -hmm. But let's just talk about buildings. A third for concrete, a third for steel and a th other metals, and a third for glass and insulation and everything else, something like that. And of course, mm -hmm. it'll vary all over the place with different buildings and so on. But concrete and steel are the big target areas. Um, mm -hmm. And concrete we can easily reduce emissions right now, and we're going to get better and better at it. And um, I'm challenging the concrete industry to declare itself. Forget net zero. It's so lame. Oh, we're going to be net zero. But no, 
Yeah, the ship has sunk this far, and now we will stay there. We are going to be absorbing five gigatons a year of, of carbon with our industry by 2040. Something like that. Show me some stuff, concrete industry, instead of just, oh, we're going to be less bad than we have been. Not, not very compelling. Mm-hmm. Steel is a whole nother, is a whole nother deal and all metals. They already recycle at a very, very high rate and they're transitioning. They almost entirely have transitioned in our country to electric arc furnaces, which are way more efficient than blast oxygen furnaces, which are basically usually run by coal or other fossil fuels. Right. Unfortunately, <clears throat> all the new steel mills going up are in China and India where they're almost all black oxygen furnace. Yeah. But they're already recycling a lot. And then there's not that much they can do. They can, I don't, I can't see, it might just be the limitation of my historical time and my mindset, but I can't see how they could become a carbon absorbing industry like concrete can, but they can get to zero. And there's lots of things in the near term they're doing. And I'm learning a lot about it, working with ASHRAE and there's a very articulate and great guy uh, representing the steel industry, several of them talking about what's involved. It's a whole long story. They can get to zero and it's basically going to be with hydrogen. We're going to develop a hydrogen economy. First, we develop a hydrogen economy so that hydrogen can provide the intense fossil fuel heat that a metal industry needs. There's just, you right. can't, you can't melt down steel with solar panels. You can, somebody did it recently in the Mojave desert with, but it's, it's not going to scale up and be a practical thing. They have to be able to focus intense fossil energy to melt the metal down and recycle it and keep recycling it and so on. Right. And I don't see anything else but hydrogen to do that. And then once we have a hydrogen economy, pipes of hydrogen traveling around, supplying fuel cell cars, supplying heavy industry, then also we are transitioning to uh, what we call green hydrogen. In other words, it's made with... Right. The whole rainbow of hydrogen could be its own one-hour talk easily. Yeah. If you go down to a welding shop right now and bought a tank of uh, hydrogen, it almost surely is made with fossil fuel energy. They just split the CH4, right? Exactly. Right. And the Swedes and some other people in Europe are taking the lead on green hydrogen mm-hmm. um, and good on them for doing so because you know it's not a solid business proposition yet, but that looks like where it's got to go with steel. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. So you brought up... Con- so that, um Please, listeners, understand that we are uh, trying to cover a vast amount of uh, terrain in a short time. So this you're kind of like looking out of the airplane from 30,000 feet, but it's really important to get that. So when it, pulling you back to concrete now, um, it can it can be decarbonized more than steel more effectively, and it also can become a net uh, carbon sink. Yes. Could you maybe start by saying like, just that's again, high level, Bruce, like, how do we make um, concrete right now? And I think I'm referring to ordinary Portland cement based concrete. Oh boy. That, that's the largest product, right? Would you say that's true? It's the largest product. It's the OPC. largest chapter in the book. Boy, don't get me started, but you already did. Too I late. got you started. <laughs> so try, you know, fly up to 30,000 feet and then no, but concrete is artificial rock. The term comes from the Latin concretius to, to bind together. Hmm. Concrete is you take a bunch of little rocks and you bind them together into a bigger rock, and that's concrete. That's what an adobe brick is. That's what the uh, Sydney Opera House is. That's what the Pantheon is. That's what the Great Wall of China is. That's what the sidewalk on your street is. 
Historically, concrete was clay-based concrete, i.e. earthen architecture, adobe, rammed earth, cob, and some lime plasters and things were around for a few thousand years until this guy in England 200 years ago playing around, he discovered if you heat it, bake the limestone in a little hotter temperature, mix in a little clay and stuff, you can get a much better hydraulic cement than anything we'd ever had before. It was basically a technological leap forward on the lime plasters that had already been around. Right. And he lived near Portland, England. He called it Portland Cement, and there it is. An industry mm -hmm. was born. Fantastic building and material. Incredible building material. It was idiot-proof. You could do everything wrong, and it would still get reasonably strong. And it took over the world because it was so easy and it was so cheap and it was a, a child of the fossil fuel industrial revolution because it took, takes a lot of fossil fuel energy to bake limestone to 2600 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's the binder that we use to bind little rocks into bigger rocks to make the concrete of today, the highways and the bridges and the foundations of buildings and so on. Uh, we're going to get away from baking rocks. We're going to grow it with uh, bacteria. Mm -hmm. There's already a company in North Carolina growing bricks with bacteria at room temperature and pressure. Wow. Uh, Biomason. There's um, lots of bioconcrete being grown in labs. My colleague, Will Shrubar at, at uh, Minus Materials up in Colorado. And many more. Love many all sorts. And it's a lot of venture capital money and a lot of brains chasing new ways to bind things, new ways to make cement. But also, uh, the bulk of concrete is the rocks and sand, the little rocks that you're binding together. Yeah. And a lot of innovation there, too. Blue Planet and other companies are making gravel out of emissions. So you capture all the CO2 coming off the smokestack at an energy plant or a cement plant and turn it into artificial limestone gravel. And then you can make your concrete out of that. And then you're really starting to absorb. Not only are you absorbing a lot of carbon out of the keeping it out of the air but you're leaving the rivers alone so we're not scraping up riverbeds everywhere yeah and wrecking the river life and all of that just to get sand and gravel for our concrete yeah um there's so many you're right this is a really those of you listening that know this subject well you know this is a hard place to to move through quickly but when you said baking rock i mean that, that was a very gentle way to, to talk about a, a massive hemorrhage of energy to create Portland right now, Portland Cement. Um, and sand, um, I learned in your book that, you know, it, I've always thought it's absurd when I hear people say we're running out of sand because I've seen deserts, right? And, I, and yet the wind-blown sand is too round. It's too smooth, I guess. Um, can you give me the, the tip of the iceberg on that? Like, why do we need pointy sand? And where do we find it? Oh, boy. Um <laughs> If I caught you flat-footed, that you can just say no, and we'll pick a little it up. bit. A little bit. I mean, you, you have you want a certain kind of sand. you want granular, angular sand because it's just it holds together in the matrix of glue better, and so it's stronger that way. It's just like you know, pouring a bunch of BBs on the floor and walking around and slipping on the BBs. You don't mm -hmm. want your concrete made out of BBs. You want it made out of sharp little rocks. Got that's, it. That's the very, very rough yeah, yeah. answer to that. Yeah, and, I get um, it. Yeah, I, I learned. Recently, from a very interesting guy that the Burj Khalifa, the highest building in the world, which I drew a picture of for the book, half a mile high, wow. in the middle of the desert. It's in Dubai. And yet they imported sand from Australia because the wind-blown sand in the desert was all rounded up and it wouldn't be strong enough concrete at the base of the building to support the load. They had to get mind-blowing Australian sand. 
Yeah, and that's reminding me that same same area of the book. You have a a, pic, a picture of the Eiffel Tower next to a cube, and the cube is of concrete. Is that right? Yeah. Is it annual concrete, or could you describe that briefly? Just that you see, we all read stuff, we and we see numbers, and one of the things I would see all the time was that the world produces ten billion tons of concrete a year, and most people, perhaps like you think wow that's a lot of concrete Ooh. yeah million but billion quadrillion it's all that's a whole bunch of concrete you bet and sort of move on you know what's mm-hmm. so i you know i sat on a little engineer calculator and i really couldn't quite believe what i did and i never did get anybody else to check it for me but i did the math several times across several weeks i couldn't anyway 10 billion tons of concrete makes a cube a mile on a side five times the height of the eiffel tower Whoa. And that's every every year and most of us just sand and gravel that we had to scrape up somewhere off of a beach or out of some river system. Incredible. And most of it, of that mile cube of concrete that's being poured every year, a very, very small fraction of it is in North America. It's almost entire, almost entirely in uh, Asia, China, and India. Where they're building, and yeah, you just said this too at the conference. Uh, by the way, the conference we're referring to is the Humid Climate Conference. and. His talk is recorded. I think it is behind a paywall, but it's well worth it. You talked about, what was it? A New York City worth of building every, was it 35, 35 days? days. Yeah. yeah. For yeah. 35 years, we're, we've been doing that. Or it's another one of those, sit down and do some math things. Uh, my, my buddies at Architecture 2030, two years ago, looked at the rate of construction happening and same sort of thing. It's sort of bowled over, like, really? And then what is that? Like a whole nother, some other statistic they put it, like a whole, we're going to build an, all the all the building space in North America right now, we're going to do three or four times over in the next 40 years. Wow. Incredible. Or the, the more compelling image is it's the equivalent of another New York City, all five boroughs every month, every 35 days, is what we're building right now on Earth. Mm-hmm. And again, only one block, one city block of that is what's in North America. The rest of it is China or India, a bit of Africa and South America. Yeah. It's just not happening. And in, in the industrialized affluent nations are pretty much built out now. And just very briefly, uh, kind of backing up a little bit, you mentioned five years ago, you were talking to some people about, should we call it net positive or net negative carbon energy, all those things. Was that the beginning of the Carbon Leadership Forum? Was that the group of people you were referring to or some other? No, it was the Carbon Leadership Forum I was talking with. But um, Kate Simonon started Carbon Leadership Forum. I remember when she called me, she was calling all sorts of people. And I was one. And I remember the call because I was standing on a job site. Something about it I just remembered. And I got very excited because it was a great idea. It's more like 12 or more years ago. Uh, Okay. Yeah. And just by the way, Carbon Leadership Forum, for really interested. If you want to know more about any of this stuff, that's the place to go. The Carbon Leadership Forum, still based in the University of Washington. And Kate Simonon, who started it, was the perfect person for the job. She's scary smart. She's a licensed architect and a structural engineer. And she's now the chair of the architecture school at U of Washington. And she's just a wonderful human being and, and has built something up that's truly impressive. Industry, government, architects and engineers, uh, it's really fabulous. So people who want to learn more, go to Carbon Leadership Forum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And it's 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 actually an under an important like an underreported story about uh, the power of human caring, you know, on an individual level, an individual person exercising their value preference system out in the world, and look what happens, right? Yes. CLF, your books, yeah. So we're, we're getting toward the end. I think there's there's other big subjects, you guys, uh, listeners. Um, I think I'll just summarize them and maybe give you an opportunity to comment. So another one is, um, you know, our friends, the plants, right? We, uh, we have our petrochemical based economy and, um, we can, we leverage that for material processing and transport. And yet plants are always processing materials. I mean, I think, you know, like if you put a plant in a potted plant in your room, as the plant gets bigger, the dirt doesn't go and drain down. Plants are assembling themselves out of molecules from the air. They're amazing little micro machines. And to date, I mean, we do cut down a lot of forests and make a lot of wood. And there are some, so there's there's some things we can, many, many things we can do with plant fibers. And, I, and I'm talking the straws and the hemps and plant oils, like tongue oil and things. Just focusing on wood, whether it's dimensional lumber for stick frame construction or Mass Timber, CLT is coming on. I would like you to agree or disagree. And I love it that you disagree sometimes. The, the most important when it comes to wood, the most important action is to say, where did this wood come from? And did it come from a sustainably managed forest? Agree or disagree, Bruce? <laughs> Blue. <laughs> um, well, that's right. But for most people, your average builder who's got to build something and order some materials generally doesn't have the time. Maybe eventually he'll yeah. find time on a Saturday afternoon to do some research. But so let me make it simple for you. Ask for FSC certified wood, Forest Stewardship Council yeah. certified wood. And that's your best shot at making sure that in securing your lumber, you left an intact forest behind with an intact ecosystem. It's a hugely complicated question that that yes. brings up. There's a lot to it, but at the same time, it, it can be pretty well boiled down to make sure you get certified lumber. There's a competing certification system called SFI, Sustainable Forestry Initiative, which is an industry sponsored. Sounds and pretty laudable. It's not worth nothing. It's better than nothing, but it's kind of the fox guarding the chicken house sort of yeah. thing. Um, so... If you want to do right by by the wood you use, make sure you ask for FSC certified lumber. Yep, absolutely. Um, I'm going to do a quick shameless plug here because you're you reminding me of so many different themes. What you might not know, Bruce, is previous episodes we've talked about systems ecology, how Howard Odom's work, energy, uh -huh. exergy, like like fossil fuels are a high exergy fuel. You wouldn't want to use them in a low exergy application. Um, we've also talked about constructal law with a Duke professor, uh, Adrian Bajan, and it just underscores these themes about thinking of the forest as a system, as a, you know, a flow system of resources through. So those are two podcasts for listeners. And then more on a micro level, we talked about the secret life of concrete with some folks here in Austin from WJE. Matt Carlton was one of them years ago. And then we did one called, uh, what was it, Locavore Construction with uh, not... Bruce King, but Brad King, who's a natural builder out here and um, about hempcrete and I think rammed earth and other things. So those are some podcasts are for the shameless plug. I think, you know, to plastics, y'all listening, 
plastics, oh my gosh, it's it's huge. They, those are petrochemicals. Um, three main themes on plastics. We need to eliminate unnecessary uses of them. Think packaging. We need to innovate better plastics. And we need to figure out ways to make those plastics like reusable, like truly reusable. What we call recycling now, right? I think we all know is actually downcycling. And eventually it ends up right near Bruce out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a horror. We, I, we, I wrote a chapter for the book about it and it was quite depressing. And one of the products of fracking is ethylene, which is a, a constituent of, of, of primary of plastics. And because of COVID and such, there's not as much demand for gasoline. So the, the petro companies to a large extent are betting their money on an increased plastics industry, which yeah. I can see just in the flow of trash in my household and around me, like, you go to the store now, everything is wrapped in plastic, even much more than five or 10 years ago. Yeah. And that's just the beginning of it. We're having this podcast and whoever you are, you're listening to it, courtesy of at least a hundred different petrochemical polymers mm-hmm. somewhere along the line between my voice and your ear. Wow. So it's, and of course it's in volume, it's all over the place. Like I said, I'm wearing it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, my earbuds are plastic. Your earbuds, yeah, yeah. The and, computer and so I'm working we're, we're on. Children yeah. of the of the petrochemical world, we're enjoying all the benefits. Uh, can we enjoy at least the big benefits, the main ones, without the devastation to the life around us? Um, yeah, it's a question to wrestle with. But um, yeah, I think this is a good transition to our to our, to our final chapter here, which is. What I alluded to in the beginning is kind of stories, uh, rewriting our cultural stories. Our, our, I call them cultural myths because I've read a lot of um, was it Joseph Campbell. But myths don't mean they're not true. They just mean these are the stories that are deep in us. Or paradigms, like paradigm, like the earth is the center of the universe. The earth is flat. Right? Those are paradigms that humanity used to have. And bef- just as a, as a way to get into this, 100 years ago, or more than 100 years ago, the 1890s, uh, Rockefeller was was kind of reviled and there was the Ludlow Colorado strike. And he like, he hired this guy, I've forgotten the guy's name now, basically started the public relations industry. And uh, so for more than a hundred years, we have been um, told stories like, you know, fundamentally, the fundamental story here in the United States is um, if you're anti petrochemicals, you're anti-American, right? Do you remember, the TV commercials when I was a kid, baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet, right? That was American petroleum industry um, right out of their playbook. And so it's not going to be easy to wean ourselves off of of plastics. It's not going to be easy to wean ourselves out of the fossil fuel industry because deep in each one of us is this, like these stories, these myths, we've been marinating in them, right? And just like you marinate meat in something and it flavors it, right? It, It does... It does flavor our basic, um, our basic perception, and so I guess I'm, the, the question for you, Bruce, is something like, "Oh, we're seeing the dog next to him on the bed now. Sweet. Do you have a strategy? Like, how do you help the United States rethink about its relationship with um, the natural world? I mean, that's a huge question. Please just say something here, profound and useful for our audience." Well, first, first, let me say something mundane to the audience. Since since I've been outed as being laying on a bed, it's because I had a knee replacement a few weeks ago, and it 
still kind of hard to get around. And, and oh, my loyal guardian poodle uh, stays by my side at all times. What's your dog's name? Uh, Reggie. Reggie. Reggie's a he? Approximately. There you go. Approximately. Not as much as he used to be, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, and okay, actually, I realized there, there's so many more chapters in your book. There's the construction industry, there's education, circular economy. Oh, the policy and government chapter. Oh, my God, I loved that. I mean, I hated it, but I loved it. You had a quote at the beginning of that chapter I might want to use. And, uh, oh, okay, the E.O. E. Wilson quote. Well, E.O. Wilson said, our basic problem is that we have Paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. Yeah. End quote. To which any of us could add, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> or rather, what could possibly go right? Uh, here we are anyway. But my life koan, wrestling around with the notion, and I leave this with you, listener, that um, climate change isn't happening to you. Your life isn't happening to you. It's happening for you mm. to open your eyes in some fashion, to open your heart in some fashion to, for you to learn. The people who revile you and spit upon you, they're the ones from whom you're going to learn something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we got to figure out carbon flows and how to get carbon out of the air and how to make concrete a certain way and yeah, 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 and I wrote a book about it. But that's not what's going to save our ass. If, if we start seeing this as climate change is happening for us, not to us, even though it's, it's our creation, if you start looking at the whole thing, everything happening in your life is this is happening for me to support me in some way. Mm -hmm. Or wake me might up. Sound, it might sound kind of like, oh, crazy new age stuff. And oh, yeah, woo, woo, woo. Let's get back to work now. And I would say the same thing myself. But I invite you to consider looking at it like if all of this is happening for me as opposed to to me, everything gets a whole lot more interesting and a whole lot more fun. Yeah. As we start the book, we our book dedication is we dedicate the book to all of you who choose compassion. Because kindness is just more fun. Mm -hmm. It just is. That's beautiful. I think that's a, that's a really good place to leave it. So listeners, uh, please, Bruce King has written uh, The New Carbon Architecture. And, and frankly, that's a big collaboration as well um, to a lot of amazing people. And Bruce King and Chris Magwood have written Build Beyond Zero. And I really, really encourage you to read these books, to, to read them thoughtfully, and to do it not out of fear and panic, but to do it because of what Bruce just said, because it's going gonna, it's gonna to ultimately be more fun. It's going to give you a sense of meaning and purpose and joie de vivre. And uh, yeah, any, any final comment, comment, Bruce? No, just thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure always to, to talk, and uh, I hope we'll get to do more talking soon. Me too. Me too. So thank you again, Bruce. And thank you all for listening.
Thank you.